how are y'all doing? Good morning. Welcome to uh, the social lives of books, uses of text and image beyond reading and viewing. This should be great fun. Very grateful for all of your attendance. This is a wonderful and hopefully lively crowd for 8.30 in the morning. Um, we're going to do a little bit of uh, introductions on introductions. I'm Hannah Marcus. Uh, I can be in this panel with Aaron Hyman, who's turning off the lights, I think, and Marissa Nicosia, who's here in the front row. We're really excited about this. Uh, this comes out of a, an interest in a conversation that we've been having over bagels at Rare Book School over the past couple of years about uh, things that people do with books other than reading them. And Erin uh, and I in particular are interested in uh, eating them. People, people engage in their texts. Um, so that's our uh, secret mission in having you all here. We're learning, learning some more about the other things that people do with them. So it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Leah Price, who's the Frances Lee Higginson Professor of English at Harvard University. She'll be uh, chairing this session and uh, adding her enthusiasm to the conversation that follows. She's written num numerous books, uh, all of which are wonderful, but the one that's like most, I think, immediately relevant to the panel today uh, on the cr uh, creative and social uses of books, uh, readership and non-readership uh, uses and misuses of books in Victoria. So Hello? No, How to do things with books in Victorian Britain 2012. We're also looking forward with bated breath to the forthcoming overbooked dispatches from the front lines of the reading wars. Uh, please join me in welcoming Leah, and she'll get us started off today. Thank you. a rock star, Hannah, but I see what you mean about the microphone. Um, thank you all for coming out so punctually to this first session of the day. Um, uh, quick reminder, if people have a cell phone on, could they please switch it off? And um, I'll introduce all three of our panelists um, right now, and I'll ask you to hold questions until after all three of them have spoken in the hope that we can get a um, conversation going among their three papers, which you'll see are quite varied in time and place, but have interesting uh, conceptual and methodological um, overlap. Our first speaker is Melissa Reynolds, who is a PhD candidate in history at Rutgers. And um, Melissa's dissertation, Gentle Reader, You Shall Understand, Practical Books and the Making of an English Reading Public, 1400 to 1560, examines vernacular knowledge in manuscript and print to ask how the social, economic, and cultural context of practical books challenges our narratives of print and the public sphere in early modern England. Um, our second speaker, Catherine M. Rudy, is professor of art history at St. Andrews University and is the author of five books um, known to probably many of us in this room. Um, including, uh, maybe most directly relevant to this panel, although it's a hard call, <laughs> postcards on parchment, the social lives of medieval books. What some people in this room may not know is that Professor Rudy is also a weaver 
um, whose uh, current show is hanging at Cambridge University Library um, and includes uh, a display of magical underwear designed by Professor Rudy, um, who has uh, smuggled um, in a sample of uh, said magical underwear that um, you may want to ask about in the discussion period. <laughs> Our final speaker, Fan Wang, is a PhD candidate in comparative literature at University of Massachusetts Amherst. And her work ranges across uh, classical Chinese poetry, drama, and fiction in late imperial China, as well as um, research on English literature. Um, her current research considers literary traditions both East and West, to expose the limitations which more conventional reading practices <coughs> tend to impose, which is a good summary, I think, of a thread running through all of these papers, although I hesitate to use that metaphor with a weaver <laughs> in the room. So, um, Melissa, over to you. Thank you, Leah, and Aaron, and Marissa, and Hannah for bringing us all together at 8.30 in the morning. Um, I'm going to not do the rock star thing. <laughs> okay, can you guys hear me if I just set it down? Great. Okay. <clears throat> this paper is about books and healing. Specifically, it is about a late medieval English recipe for a consumable textual cure, a book object that exists somewhere between amulet and medicament. Though the practice of using written words for healing is likely as old as writing itself, the late medieval era presents an especially rich archive for evidence of textual healing. As a result of rising literacy rates among the laity and the widespread adoption of written vernaculars, from the 14th century we find increasing numbers of recipes for the creation of these cures recorded in manuscript codices from across Europe. In the English archive, these recipes for curative writing are especially common in collections of practical knowledge vernacular miscellanies which emerged as a coherent genre at the turn of the 15th century. One of the aims of this paper will be to explore how textual cures fit within the context of these books, filled as they are with an assortment of recipes for daily tasks, from cooking to medicine to ink making to agriculture. Cambridge University Library Manuscript DD444, hereafter DD, is one such practical English, Middle English miscellany. It is a quarto-sized manuscript of 38 parchment leaves with Middle English recipes for medicaments, equine care, pigment and dye making, and numerous charms. According to its catalog entry, the manuscript was created in the early 15th century, but this date appears to refer to the professionally copied treatises on equine care scattered throughout the manuscript, and which you see up here. <coughs> These feature rubricated headings and blue paraphs and a uniform Anglicana script. These professional entries end on the verso of folio 27, from which point, until the end of the manuscript at folio 40, loose leaves have been stitched into the binding. Two of these leaves, folios 30 and 36, have been cut out entirely, while smaller sections of folios 32, 33, and 35 have been partially excised, and you can see they're, they're cut. Filling these final leaves and sprinkled throughout the earlier professionally copied portions of the manuscript are later hands from the 15th and 16th centuries, some of which appear very amateurish. 
What draws our attention today is a recipe at the top of folio 29R for a medicine for the aches, a corruption of the Anglo-Norman egg or acute fever. The recipe reads, and you can see up here, take a sage leaf that is not parsed and write this on with a pen with ink. In principio, principio, erat verbum angulus nunciat. And then give hit the sick to eat and let the sick say first five paternosters in the worship of the five wounds of our Lord, Jehus Christe Christe, and five aves in the worship of the five joys of our lady. And then in the second day, take another leaf and write this on, at verbum erat apud deam, Johannes, Johannes predicat, and say the prayers foresaid. And the third day, take another leaf and write this on, at deus erat verbum Christus tonat and give hit the sick, and let him say the prayers foresaid, and by God's grace he shall be healed. There is a lot to unpack here. <laughs> First, this recipe is labeled a medicine, and not a charm. In medieval parlance, charm, or carmen in Latin, was the catch-all term used to describe a ritual involving powerful words, whether they were spoken aloud or written, as in this recipe. As Don Schemer has noted, Amulet was not a term used by medieval writers, who might have instead used characteres or phylacteria to describe writing used for protection, though charm was still more common. Dozens of other charms, labeled as such, appear in this miscellany, but this recipe is given a title that emphasizes its herbal rather than its textual qualities. Second, we note that this medicine consists of an herbal ingredient, and that its specificity mirrors recipes for other herbal medicaments. <coughs> One must use a sage leaf, but it must not be pierced in any way, and one must write exactly these words on exactly these days with a pen using ink. And of course, these are not just any words. They are the words which declare the inherent and divine power of language. In the beginning, there was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. These verses from the first chapter of the Gospel of John were, as Eamon Duffy put it, some of the most numinous used in the late medieval church. They were the first of the four Gospels included in the Latin ori. They were spoken aloud at the ritual blessing of the um, Holy Bread and as the last Gospel of the Mass. They were recited as part of the processions at Rogation Tide, as a means of protecting the parish from evil. In short, a 15th century man or woman would have heard this verse spoken aloud hundreds of times in his or her life, and would have connected these words with ritual, sanctification of consumable matter, and protection. Three themes which make this a fitting verse for an edible textual cure. The sage leaf medicine is the only edible <laughs> textual medicine in this particular miscellany, but there are other textual charms. On the folio immediately preceding the sage leaf medicine, 28V, and on folio 35R, are several charms which require that magical words be written on either parchment or, as in this example, on a plate of lead. <laughs> And in fact, you put it on a plate of lead and then you put it in a horse's head. <clears throat> um, nor is the sage leaf medicine unique within the Middle English corpus of curative writing. Volume 10 of the Manual of, Mid of Writings in Middle English does not include this DD manuscript, but does give citations for another 12 manuscripts containing a sage leaf charm against fever. And Leah Olson has located another three exemplars of the charm besides those listed in the manual though I have not yet been able to check all of the witnesses for the sage leaf medicine. I have compared the two versions of the charm available in print or online. Um, one edited by Olson from Cambridge University Library Additional NS 9308, and another digitized in Welcome Library NS 542, and they are remarkably consistent with one another, but differ from the sage leaf medicine here in the DD manuscript. 
both of these other recipes utilize the language Christus tonat, angulus nunciat, and Johannes predicat, but omit the imprincipio verse from the opening chapter of the Gospel of John. And finally, in addition to these sage leaf versions, numerous other charms for the fevers follow similar structural themes. One version, found in at least 35 Middle English miscellanies, instructs the reader to write various sacred words on communion wafers, or oblates, and eat them over the course of three days. A Latin version of this oblate cure can be found in the manuscript of Thomas Fairford, a well-studied late medieval English physician, whose book of remedies is now British Library, Harley, MS 2558. And finally, two Anglo-Norman charms, edited by Tony Hunt and found in Bodleian Library, MS Digby 86, mix the themes of writing, holy words, and ingestion of herbs to cure fev. There are substantial variations among these versions in Middle English, Latin, and Anglo-Norman French. But each shares an emphasis on sacred writing consumed over a three-day period. As Olson has argued, the functional similarities between these charms result from a convergence of two belief systems. On the one hand, medieval typologies of fevers emphasized three- or four-day cycles, the tertian or quartan fevers listed in numerous remedy books. The various charms here each required three days of writing and praying, in effect promising to neutralize a three-day fever, or perhaps cure a sickly patient before the deadly fourth day of the quartan fever. On the other hand, the threeness of all these charms obviously evokes deeply rooted themes of Christianity. Christ was tempted three times in the desert, Christ rose on the third day, and of course God is tripartite, the Holy Trinity. In each fever cure, specific Christian holy words are consumed, in some cases literally on communion wafers, making absolutely explicit the relationship between Christian ritual and healing practice. This interplay between Christian motifs and healing practice was a preoccupation for medieval thinkers, who were alternately condemnatory or skeptical of the orthodoxy of the use of holy words to protect. St. Augustine condemned, condemned the use of written characters and textual amulets as pagan superstition that relied on the power of demonic forces. But later medieval thinkers were less inclined to view textual amulets as necessarily nefarious, in part because the introduction of Greek and Arabic philosophy to the Latin West in the 12th century brought the concept of natural magic into the Latin tradition. Arabic writings introduced new ways of thinking about inscribed symbols or signs capturing forces in nature. Although the majority of medieval men and women would not have been aware of this learned magic of astral influences working through sacred signs, Thomas Aquinas argued that it was perfectly acceptable for even the uneducated to carry sacred words as the Jews wore tefillin so long as they understood that these words were akin to prayers. Presumably, because the practice was common, writers of pastoral manuals in the 13th and 14th centuries also weighed in on the custom of wearing or saying holy words for healing. Catherine Ryder has surveyed these manuals, which largely conform to Aquinas' views. Holy words are fine, so long as they conform to established rituals of prayer or scripture, and so long as the bearer of these words does not believe they are more or less effective depending on the manner by which they were written. Those practices were condemned as superstitio. But, as we have seen, the sage leaf medicine from the DD manuscript certainly breaks the aforementioned rule against belief in the efficacy of holy words only in certain circumstances. The recipe gives very specific instruction on how and when to write words drawn from Holy Scripture. And I would argue that how and when these holy words were written is as critical to the recipe, and thus as important to the user of the Didi manuscript, 
as what words were written. Contributing to this conclusion are a series of errors within the transcription of the Latin portion of the medicine. The scribe uses the traditional abbreviations for Principio, Criste, and Johannes, but then immediately extends all of these abbreviations, creating a repetition of these words. The scribe also adds an interlinear boom, you can see it on the, uh, I guess you're far right, um, above the abbreviated werbu in the sixth line, extending the word above the line rather than simply adding an end to the existing word if he wanted it to be complete. He uses numerous similar abbreviations within the Middle English portion of the recipe, as in persid on the very first line, but does not extend or repeat any of the abbreviated Middle English words. I propose two possible conclusions. First, perhaps he was copying from an exemplar where someone else had extended the Latin words, and he did not know that he was repeating them. Or, alternatively, and more likely in my view, perhaps he chose to extend the abbreviated Latin for a future user or reader, recognizing the likelihood that the recipe would be performed by an illiteratus who might not know how to extend those words when writing them on the sage leaf. And this is not the only evidence of questionable Latin or a fast and loose relationship with sacred words in the Didi manuscripts. Indeed, the three other textual charms recorded in this manuscript on folios 28V and 35R employ strings of vaguely Latin nonsense words as curative writing. So in the horsehead charm, it's not even really that close to Latin. It's like zeronen, zeronen, zeronem. There's one astra in there, so I guess you can get one good Latin word. And then on the bottom charm, there's an only possible plus. And of course, this is not unusual to this manuscript. I would like to argue that the transcription errors of the sage leaf medicine, coupled with these pseudo-Latin charms, call us to question the relationship between what the words in a textual cure signify and what they represent as a series of physical movements, processes, and techniques. In short, I am wondering if a medieval user saw these sacred words as invoking a series of meanings, or if they viewed this recipe as an opportunity to create with their own hands a physical object that, through the act of writing, referenced sacred power. Perhaps these medieval men and women saw these textual cures as process and writing as product. And I think we can explore this idea not only because the sage leaf medicine is preoccupied with the specifics of process, the three days time, gathering the right sage leaf, writing in ink, saying the right prayers, consuming the cure, but because textual cures so often appear in remedy books, alongside dozens, if not hundreds, of other recipes for a variety of things that depended on the right ingredients and the right techniques of manufacture. As part of my dissertation research, I have analyzed 66 other 15th century Middle English remedy books, of which 13 contain some recipe for a textual cure or charm in writing. In every case, these cures or charms are interspersed among other recipes, which stress process more so than effect. To understand a single textual cure, and especially this textual cure, we have to look at its context. We have to look at the whole book. I have already mentioned that the first 27 folios of this manuscript contain recipes for equine care, some of which are charms, but many more of which are simply recipes for powders, plasters, or herbal tinctures. Beginning on folio 27V, a different 15th century hand has written a series of charms related to equine ailments. The sage leaf cure on folio 29R, which you can see at the top on your right there, written in that same hand, appears to be the last of this series of cures that involve writing or saying sacred words. Directly following the sage leaf medicine, and in the same hand, is a recipe for curing hemorrhoids using leeks, 
And below that, a recipe involving painter's oil, mastic, um, yellow, ochre, red lead, and frankincense. The verso of the folio with the sage leaf cure contains still more recipes involving the grinding of pigments to make dyes for various shades of damask cloth, in some cases accompanied by specific instruction for applying these colors. However, these recipes are written under the heading, A Good Medicine for the Glanders, Another Equine Ailment. The mistitling of this page of recipes suggests that perhaps the volume was intended solely as a book of equine remedies, but the compiler, as in the majority of English practical miscellanies, used blank leaves to add all sorts of other useful bits of practical knowledge. One is tempted to imagine the excised sections of parchment on folios 32, 33, and 35 as evidence that a medieval user tried his or her hand at a textual cure, but of course, that is merely speculation. Folios 31 through 38 are, are filled with still more charms and recipes added haphazardly by various hands, including recipes for a pottage to keep a man lasketed and anointment for the sciatica. Indeed, recipes to ease the pain of sciatica recur so frequently through the last leaves of the manuscript that one suspects the compiler suffered from extreme lower back pain. <laughs> Finally, folios 38B and 39R contain still more professionally looking entries on the virtues of rosemary and betony. These treatises explain how each herb may be used to cure ailments through multiple different but specific preparations. The variety of these recipes is not unique to the DD manuscript. Of the 12 other remedy books in my study that contain textual cures or charms in writing, seven also contain an herbal with instructions for when to harvest, how to prepare, and what to cure with various herbs. Four also contain ink-making or book-making recipes. Four contain agricultural instruction of some kind, two contain recipes for cookery, and one other manuscript contains recipes for textiles. In short, when we read the sage leaf medicine in the excuse me, context of all of these other recipes for which process and ingredients are of primary importance, it helps us to see writing as akin to other craft techniques, like grinding, tempering, boiling, or soaking. No doubt the scribe whose entries fill the DD manuscript considers himself a member of the craft of scriveners, or writers, so to return to a focus on writing as craft is simply to return to his way of thinking. But more importantly, thinking about the act of writing as craft and reading these textual cures within the context of the recipes that surround them allows us to see textual cures as a sort of connected tissue between two distinct traditions of knowledge in medieval society, and is particularly emblematic of late medieval attitudes toward writing among those below the rank of the university educated. The verse recorded on the sage leaf in this textual cure, John chapter 1, verse 1, proclaims that God is word. The use of these literal words in the sage leaf medicine places this charm within the tradition of emphasis on texts as the meaning, as the means of knowing God and his creation. On the other hand, the sage leaf cure fits within a tradition of knowledge that was based not in words, but in things. Quite literally, it rests among recipes for grinding pigments, dyeing cloth, and making pottage. Medieval thinkers had a name for this way of knowing, too, the Ars Mechanica, concerned with earthly existence and the manipulation of worldly materials. According to medieval classifications, the Ars Mechanica consisted of such mundane activities as fabric making, agriculture, medicine, or cooking, categories that show up side by side as recipes in the DD manuscript and in other collections of practical knowledge, related to one another through the processes and materials they required and the things they produced. The DD manuscript with its many recipes for making things, including a sage leaf medicine, wherein one of several ingredients is writing, 
reminds us of the somewhat liminal position of the written word among those individuals for whom the laborious act of writing was as much a part of the power of words as their meaning. Here, on the final verso of the final leaf of the D.D. manuscript, we see the physical evidence of this laborious act of writing in the jagged and irregular letter forms of this recipe for the dropsy. This short recipe and its unruly script reminds us how difficult it was to learn to write in late medieval England. It required precision and practice and a great deal of effort. Why shouldn't this difficult set of practices transform a sage leaf into something powerfully curative? What was the difference between a physical transformation of ground pigments and the physical transformation of a sage leaf through equally intensive and technical manipulation? We can perhaps imagine this writer using the same script on a sage leaf, working his pen over a surface even less forgiving than parchment, using writing as both ideation and object, process and prayer, material and medicine. Do you want me to close it or you got it? Okay. Sorry. Fascinating. That was fascinating. <laughs> Terrific. Um, so my project, which is uh, to called Touching Skin, Why Medieval Readers Rubbed and Kissed Their Manuscripts, comes out of a, uh, a project I did a few years ago called the Dirty Books Project. And let me just tell you a little bit about that so that you can understand the context here. Um, in the Dirty Books Project, this happened when I was curator of manuscripts for the Royal Library of the Netherlands. And I was able to look at a, a large number of manuscripts over a short period of time. And one of the things that I noticed, in, for example, in this uh, Delft Book of Hours, here are six different openings from it. And you can see that some of the openings are extremely filthy, uh, like the opening for the, uh, the Hours of the Virgin, or uh, this St. Sebastian prayer, or the St. Christopher. But others are rel relatively clean, like the St. Ursula. And, and then there's a middling amount of dirt here at the, at the, um, the Hours of the Cross. And so I wanted to figure out whether there was a way to put numbers to these measurements and to figure out whether we could sort of metrically index how much people had, had spent time doing, uh, reading these different sections. So I got myself a densitometer, as one does, and, um, which, which happened to be in the back room of my aunt, the chemist's office, so very handy to have an aunt who's a chemist, and zero the scale, it's a logarithmic scale, on the part of the page that wouldn't be touched, and then took a reading of the juiciest part of the fingerprint here, then logged all of these uh, data into a spreadsheet, and then was able to generate a graph of usership for this particular book of hours. And this works really well with books of hours because, of course, they're not text that you would read continuously from cover to cover, but rather uh, you pick and choose uh, which text to read. The calendar is a, a thing of its own, but you can see here the Hours of the Virgin has the largest area under the curve and therefore corresponds to the greatest amount of time that this particular book owner spent with this book, whereas the Hours of the Cross is way down here, therefore disproving the idea that everyone woke up and read the Matins of the Hours of the Cross and the Matins of the Hours of the Virgin every single day. In fact, it's more likely that these things were seasonally uh, adjusted. 
um, the penitential psalms here with a big spike at the um, at the uh, the litany of the saints. So here's somebody who's really into saints, and that's also confirmed um, in these big spikes at the suffrages. Uh, in other manuscripts I looked at, we can see people who don't have any truck with saints, where those sections are really flat. And then um, the vigil of the dead, the beginning, and then it sort of peters off. And what you can also tell from from looking at this manuscript in this way, you can begin to do a little biography of the owner and say that here's somebody who cares a lot about the hours of the Virgin um, and um, a little bit less about the hours of the cross, but this person also fell asleep about a third of the time before reaching the end of the text at conflict. So like me, was sort of an early riser, um, early to bed kind of person. So I wanted to think about ways in which dirt and deposits and other kinds of traces in manuscripts can tell us stories about how the books were actually used. And that has really launched uh, the next part of this project. And I've divided those, those forms of dirt into inadvertent forms of wear and targeted forms of wear. So let me just start with the inadvertent forms of wear. And here, for example, is some candle wax that's been dripped on the book, which therefore um, suggests that the book has been written by, or by, read by candlelight, which is also really funny because this text is Illumina Oculos Mayhem. So somebody's actually reading the text uh, following the instructions. So what does this candle wax um, tell us about reading patterns and what time of day? I suppose in, in, uh, I, lived, I lived at 54 degrees north latitude in Scotland where it's dark all the time, uh, so we use a lot of uh, candles, but anywhere else, uh, it it uh, sort of means that there is a lot of late night or early morning reading. Or this pattern of wear. This is a manuscript that's in Cambridge University Library. This is the only image that remains in it, probably because it's damaged, and the other uh, images in this book weren't damaged, and they were removed by an unscrupulous dealer sometime in the 19th century. But you can see that this damage has been caused by, by, uh, by rain or some kind of all over moisture that's covered the entire opening of the book, uh, which has also uh, caused extra damage at the bottom where the, the hand dirt and so forth is, becomes more sticky and then sticks to the parchment, but that the green here, the raising of Lazarus, the green field, has um, almost entirely peeled off. And what I figure in this case is that somebody used this, this manuscript, and this is the Vigil of the Dead in a private prayer book, in a book of hours, um, that this person may have used the book while imitating a priest who is going to the gravesite um, and carrying the book in an open form in a kind of procession. So this person is, is imitating this kind of behavior and um, taking the book outside to read it at a grave site outside. And th this kind of pattern actually reappears in other manuscripts as well. Here's another um, English manuscript of English rain coming um, down on this, uh, this particular opening. And you can see that this um, opening alone has shrunken because of the water damage. And you can see that the whole page is slightly buckled and has caused it to shrink so the rest of the, t uh, the book block is a, little, is a centimeter larger and that this all over damage has resulted in uh, the situation where all of the paint around the gold uh, balls has uh, liquefied and um, lifted 
and, um, and that we, we sort of add the tears of the user to the rainwater uh, and the image of, of Mary, um, and, and it yields this kind of pattern. So far from simply being damaged, it's extremely telling damage. Or in this example, uh, closer to home, this is a manuscript here in Philadelphia. Uh, this is an opening in a prayer book made in South Holland. Um, and the rubric indicates that this is a for procession at Easter time. So somebody has taken this out of procession um, during the rain. And you can see here also, and this becomes uh, clearer in another example I have in a minute, that red uh, ink is often, uh, often liquefies before black ink does. And it's the first to go, um, to go mushy and, and lift from the page. And that is something that's very clear in this manuscript. This is a noted ritual uh, for serum use, probably made in England in the 15th century. And this book has been splashed all over uh, in, in several places because of the use of the aspirilogum. And, and here, this is uh, for uh, Libera uh, May de Morta Eterna. So this is the, for, for a, 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 a ritual for the dead. And the, the priest has sprayed this with water, and the, uh, the, the ink has completely lifted from the red parts. Um, later on in the same manuscript is a ritual for baptism, and here is where the wet baby has dripped over uh, the, the book. And I, I wonder whether you know all of this, this brown crud here is a baby poop and uh, baby stuff. Uh, <laughs> Uh, in, the, in the margins here. It's a little baby excrement giving us um, the real McCoy. So those are some examples, therefore, of, of inadvertent signs of wear, the kinds of wear and tear that were part and parcel of using the book correctly uh, in the kinds of rituals that were designed for it. Now, I want to, um, to switch to uh, topics to think about targeted wear, that is, uh, deliberate touching of particular pages or parts of pages or images or sometimes uh, words, and to think about what those look like and what kinds of stories they might tell about where and how books are used. So um, the deliberate touching I'm going to talk about um, include kissing with the mouth, touching with a wet finger, touching with a dry hand, which is really quite a different uh, set of patterns, um, touching the image in order to animate the image, to, make, uh, to, to gesture in such a way that the image becomes larger to an audience, and, uh, and then finally scraping with a sharp instrument, so that's what we have to look forward to. Um, a lot of these uh, gestures, I think, come out of the priestly gesture of kissing the canon page of the Missal during the course of the Mass. And in uh, more than, than uh, the greater part of the surviving Missals from the 13th century forward, uh, at the canon page, which is usually one that falls about halfway uh, through the book so that it can be open symmetrically at the moment of this osculation, uh, we get uh, an increasingly large image of Christ as the late Middle Ages progresses, and that that image of Christ is often kissed. And here you can see that the priest has particularly directed his attention to the feet of Christ, to the bottom of the cross, but also has, has worked up the torso as well. And that um, here we get the, the lifting of the paint from, from the moisture of the face, but also that the, the, the nose and the chin touch at the bottom 
of the, of the image, therefore leaving the nose and facial grease. And of course, because this is water-soluble paint, the, the fat and um, the lipidinous parts of the facial oils don't cause that to liquefy, but only to stain and to make uh, the page uh, slightly more um, um, see-through because of uh, it's being imbued with oils. And of course, illuminators realized that all of this oscillation was going to ruin the image, and so they started putting in these oscillatory targets here in order to sort of aim your lips at this point. But those were sort of a weak thing to, to kiss, and that there's, there's this really strong draw uh, toward the body of Christ, and, and or in this case, where uh, this metal, very beautiful, golden, uh, filigree, oscillatory target. Um, has completely failed to attract the lips of the priests that have gone north and, and taken with it um, the skull and part of the landscape and smeared a lot of the torso and loincloth across the landscape um, in the most dramatic fashion. But that, I mean, part of my argument is that uh, people who are in uh, uh, positions of authority, so including priests, who are performing these kinds of rituals that they are inadvertently explaining or showing people how to use their books in private and that these gestures then get translated into the private devotional sphere um, as with this private book of ours made in the southern Netherlands for export <coughs> to England um, where this book has, um, has been used by a lay, uh, a lay person who has sort of imitated a priest and kissing this image over and over again. And we can see that it's most definitely a wet technique that has, uh, that has introduced a lot of uh, moisture onto the surface, causing a lot of uh, uh, cracking here. But the, the person's also deposited nose and chin grease onto the page and also handled it, sort of gripping the book for dear life. Um, but when we look at the back of this folio, um, we can see that that nose grease has really come through, um, therefore really strongly suggesting that it is a sort of whole facial contact that is causing this kind of, of um, disfigurement and um, interaction with the book. So extremely close uh, contact here. Now, so this is techniques with the mouth, wet techniques. So both the, uh, the effluvia from the, the mouth, the, the saliva, but also uh, facial grease. But another way to use the mouth was by kissing the finger and using the finger as if it were a pax, um, transferring the kiss on the fingertip. And we can, we can reconstruct this gesture uh, from a large number of manuscripts, only a few of which I brought uh, to show you today. Here is another uh, English uh, missal, the Te Igator here, so no big uh, canon page. But in order to mark this section as particularly relevant, important, to give it heightened importance, the, the, the user of the book, who must have been a, a priest, uh, then kissed his finger and not only touched the T in Te Igator, but also used the decoration here in order to uh, signal the beginning of reading by touching the decoration. Here's a detail of that, where you can really see the finger whorls, where the finger whorls um, have uh, transferred the saliva to the ink and caused the, that ink to liquefy and spread out over the gold and leak out beyond the frame of the tea. And, but we also get this gesture upward. 
And I think that there's also an element of curiosity here, where the, the book user is also curious and involved with the various textures, including the very uh, exciting sort of cold metallic texture of burnished gold. And that's uh, what we often see uh, being touched. So we can see this, this movement uh, along the side. But this is also related to that osculatory target. Um, and, and by that I mean that here is an attempt to try to deflect some of this very physical attention onto uh, the, the margins uh, where it won't uh, infect the, the text itself, where the text remains legible uh, because the, the attention will go uh, to the side. Now, um, other people, so this, this is a, um, um, a manuscript in, um, in Oxford in the Bodleian. A lot of these examples are from the Bodleian. Um, and this is a, a Psalter. Uh, where each of the psalms of the major uh, breaks is, is uh, initiated with a historiated initial showing David. And you can also see that another kind of gesture was also in place because the user of this book um, formally uh, sewed a curtain onto the top of the page thereby, so that lifting the curtain would add this ta-da moment and give an extra kind of uh, drama uh, that unveiling the book would uh, give this extra drama. But you can also see that this person has repeatedly wet-touched uh, the image um, and targeting in particular the face, um, but then also the altar where the book is, but then didn't want to take the paint home or, and wanted to leave it on the book itself because it just wiped it off on the thing. And, and, and so you just imagine this gesture. So this is, uh, th these are several different uh, different uh, moments uh, where, where the person has, has uh, performed this particular gesture. And in this same manuscript, something else is taking place, um, which is that not only is the person wet touching uh, the image of the Trinity in this case, um, and really quite uh, uh, vigorously doing that repeatedly over time, but has also targeted the bosses in the decoration. And I wonder here whether the user is treating the book as a body and is doing sort of Father, Son, Holy Spirit on the book, sort of Father, Son, Holy Spirit on the book, doing this with wet touching and making a connection this way. And that would explain, in this case, uh, the particular pattern of wear uh, that we see here. Um, so this. Uh, was a, a manuscript that uh, might have actually belonged to a priest. Uh, this is a, another uh, Southern Netherlandish manuscript for export to England, uh, so for a lay user who also left notes elsewhere in the book, um, who's also vociferously kissed it and used it uh, physically, kissing the image of, of um, St. Apollonia. You can always sort of tell when somebody's suffering from toothache because St. Apollonia um, suffers as well. And in this case, her face has been redrawn, I think. So you can kiss her over and over again, and then you want to redraw her face so she can take more. Uh, but, but her halo, which has been done over this very cheap uh, gold uh, sort of, uh, it's, it's, not, it's not a very um, well-crafted book, but the background is, is gold, and drawing on top of gold doesn't leave a very stable surface, and her halo has therefore transferred, um, has gone east. Now, um, it seems as if touching the initials is, is something that a lot of people do. 
in both uh, religious books, but also, and I've increasingly noticed this in literary manuscripts, I haven't brought any examples of that, but I think you'll find Chaucer manuscripts and other kinds of uh, courtly literature touched in this way as a, as a, a signal to say that reading has begun. And it may uh, um, um, simply be a, a way of, of uh, a little, it might actually be the forerunner of touching the, the finger to the, to the tongue and turning the pages in the, in the printed era. So that might have a, um, uh, an origin in this kind of behavior, where but clearly people are touching this over and over again, over a series of reading events. Um, but it really does lower the page. Uh, but some people are very cautious and try to localize their touching so that they, they keep it all contained there. While others are, um, um, are, are willing to lick off the entire M. The Vision of the Dead is one of these, these texts in Books of Hours that is either completely ignored or else it's really read intensively. It sort of goes either way. And in the intensively read ones, um, we can see that these are gestures of, of proving that one is, is uh, doing uh, this kind of um, prayer on, uh, for the benefit of the recently dead, for family members and so forth. And that oftentimes, we have about 50 examples of this, but I'll just show you one, um, is that people are making contact with the coffin, which is usually draped in blue, or making contact with the paid mourners who are, are represented here. So this is why they are so often marred. But moving on to um, dry techniques now, um, and stepping back in time to think about the, the, the ways in which these dry techniques became official. And uh, in this ninth century gospel manuscripts now in the, in the Schnitken Museum in Cologne, uh, here are the four major openings at the, at the, uh, the, the Kips of the Gospels. And you can see that they have been heavily rubbed. And in particular, a little bit at Matthew, quite a bit at Mark, um, uh, a lot at Luke, but really a lot at John. And here, let's look at this John. Um, and the reason for this is that the, the, the Gospel manuscript is the, is the book on which people are swearing oaths. And so here is the, the place where one would touch the book while, while swearing an oath. So this is not the same as the place where one turns the pages, which is usually the lower corner, but this, this uh, pattern of wear signals a ritual use. But look at this image uh, from the opening of John here in particular, and I think that this is really telling because we can see that there are two people touching at once here, one standing here and one standing in the corner. And, and so this might be involved in a ritual where two people are being bonded together in a marriage or some kind of treaty or pact or, um, uh, or so forth. Uh, so that, oh yeah, 60 seconds. Oh no, I, I, I have 21 minutes here. Oh, it's only 20 minutes. All right. Well, in that case, in that case uh, I'll stop. Oh, this is sad. I'll just show you, I'll just show you one more, and then I'll stop. Okay, so at court, uh, at court, the, um, I think that this, this kind of uh, ritual use of books is happening at court. This is the Vows of the Peacock, where um, uh, a story about people being besieged in a castle, and they're bored. And one person kills a peacock, and another um, resurrects the peacock in gold on a, on a pedestal. And I think that this is the part of the story where somebody's reading it out loud when all of the audience members rush the stage and they, say, and they take their own vows. 
And the men take their vows on the male characters, the women take their vows on the female characters, and everybody touches this peacock, which is why we get uh, these big streaks uh, from all the different directions of this book at once. So the, the book becomes the locus of this group participatory event. Now you can all rush the stage. <laughs> Thanks a lot. And apparently the 
demand for this kind of goods or large enough to attract commercial publishers. And this is a printed one, produced by a commercial publishing house in 19th century. It is six centimeters in height, but includes, it includes all the five classics with complete commentary. <laughs> <laughs> And here's another one. And this one is, is in manuscript form. Um, next to the book is a Chinese coin. This is about the, the size of a dime. <laughs> All right, so apart from these books, the candidate also tried to sneak into the compound short, covered with classics in tiny characters. <laughs> um, I don't know if you can see this, but the important lines are even highlighted in red. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And here's another one, another group. And you can see the divisions between paragraphs and different texts. Um, I don't know how many of them managed to, to wear shorts like this into the examination hall, because in theory, exam candidates were supposed to be strip searched before they enter the And it is profoundly ironic that texts intended to inculcate morals principles <laughs> were incarnated into a physical format that facilitated cheating. <laughs> And those examination candidates were supposed to prove their not only their intellectual adequacy but also their ethical integrity <laughs> when writing the examination essays. Because um, in those examination essays, they were uh, supposed to adopt the persona of an Asian sage and uh, speak in the sagely voice. <laughs> uh, this is how they do it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, wood block printing was first used in the 7th century to, put, to print religious texts, images, Buddha, and calendars. And those books are not necessarily for reading. Um, this is a frontispiece of the Diamond Sutra. It was dated to 860, uh, 868, and it's said to be the earliest complete survival of a dated printed book. And it's interesting that the carbon is the carbon says on bottom of the slide. The Diamond Sutra was printed reverently for universal free distribution by Bounty on behalf of the two parents on the thirteenth of the fourth moon of the ninth year of Tong. Um, so the so the Diamond Sutra was printed as a, a, a gesture of video parody, as a sound to pray for his two parents. And this is a prayer sheet printed on white paper in the 10th century. Uh, in medieval China, people 
hand-copied, printed, and distributed Buddhist sutras, priorities, and images of Buddha to accumulate karmic merit for themselves or their loved ones. And they're not necessarily to be right. And at least not right by living readers. Mm -hmm. In 1944, um, a Dharani charm was found within a hollow bracelet in a tomb dated to the 9th century. He was buried with disease to keep him safe and in peace in the afterlife. So the charm was intended for the dead. And this is not the original, the picture of the original Dharani charm found in, in the tomb. Um, I, I got a picture, um, but it looks similar to this. It's a Buddha figure on four sides and at the center. And the, the, Buddha, uh, the Buddha image in the center is surrounded by Sanskrit text that forms a square. A, a tiny stupa. Um, <laughs> and the stupa is created to contain the hand copied charm, a rani charm. And again, um, manuscript scrolls like this were not for reading. It was a gesture of piety. And it was always contained within those stupa to be buried and or to be erected as some kind of monument. And here is one of the earliest calendars printed in medieval China. And this one is dated to the 9th century. And it's amazing that calendars printed in later dynasties until, I mean, until late 19th century, look remarkably similar to this one. It has the uh, 12 branches of the year, and solo tones, <coughs> and the animals. Stone books. Um, so a collection of stone covered books were created in the second century on various Confucian classics. And these stones are not just monuments. They are actually intended to be right. And they were carved in the second century to preserve the classic in, in imperially sanctioned versions. And they were set up outside the imperial academy. And so students could walk around and raise the stones. And sometimes they make transcriptions or rubbings from the stones. And here is a jade book. Um, jade books were endowed with ritualistic properties that signify interior endorsement. And this is a collection of poems 
written to celebrate a Manchu soldier's military victory over Xinjiang area in the 18th century. So it has both ritualistic and imperial significance. <coughs> Here is another book commissioned by the emperor from <coughs> Qing Dynasty. So, very modern Chinese literati pays close attention to the material aspects of books. And starting in the mid 16th century, treaties on book connoisseurship uh, became an increasingly popular genre. <coughs> As books became more readily available to a broader section of the population, the mere act of owning them ceased to function as an adequate marker of cultural sophistication. It consequently became imperative for the cultural elite, the arbiters of taste, to reassert their privileged position by dictating the use of book ownership. And one strategy was to shift the, the locus of prestige from the size of a library to the quality and the rarity of these holdings. And those aspiring to cultural capital began to write profusely and elaborately about the color, smell, and texture of both the book, as also both the paper and the ink used to print books. And sophisticated book owners now needed to know if the paper is in a given book, in a given book was dyed or not, if it was made of bamboo pulp or hemp, if the surface was rough or smooth, and if the ink was treated with perfume or spice to mask the smile of the pencil. And early modern Chinese literati reading, um, for early modern Chinese literati, reading or simply holding a book came to constitute an all-embracing holistic aesthetic experience with the materiality of the ink, paper, and the binding, as well as the quality of pipe and the calligraphy speaking as eloquently as the text. And if bibliographies' um, obsessions, bindings, bookcases, and labels threaten to upstage the discursive aspects of the book, and it's <coughs> an exclusive focus on its materiality presented even more risk. And unlike other properties that which had more or less readily recognizable and realizable monetary value, books could be valueless in the eyes of the ignorant and uninformed just as they could be priceless in the eyes of the cultured and enlightened, thus making them also more vulnerable to misuse and abuse. And like the accounts in early modern Europe of manuscripts being used for a variety of household purposes, accounts of private book collections in early modern China abound in unfortunate incidents of books sold by, by the pound in exchange for food and clothing or put to domestic uses such as fire making, warm pasting, or sold as waste paper to pay off gambling debt by servants and filial children or universal women. And when a housewife or servant dismembered a book and turns its shredded pages into shoe soles or jar covers, she is either ridiculed for appalling ignorance or condemned for her knowing violation of textuality. But then a literati who purposely foregrounds the materiality of a book by putting it to unconventional uses, he is most likely making a statement, whether political, whether political, cultural, or personal. 
and his idiosyncratic misuses of the book is in, is in all probability motivated by a keen appreciation of his sexual values rather than a disregard for his physicality. And then Martin decided that to boil, to boil water for the, with the woodblocks of Sutang Renji, a title produced by his grandfather, the famous publisher Mao Jin, would make the, his purity taste exponentially better. He deliberately converged the material and textual aspects of the book by extending the beauty and charm of the world onto the material medium that bore it. And the destruction, the, the destruction of the woodblocks, therefore, paradoxically constitutes a celebration of the text. And similarly, the scholar who, according to the legend, miraculously assuaged the storm by throwing into the region river a volume of poems, hand-copied by Dong Qichang, placed his face in the magic power of Dufu's words and Dong Qichang's handwriting. In other words, the supernatural soothing qualities of the book resided in its exceptional linguistic and calligraphic appeal. Now, if the Borneo woodblocks and the drawing of Dufu's poems paradoxically displays the fine literary taste and aesthetic discernment on the part of Martin's great-grandson great as a legendary scholar, setting fire to one's own library during dynastic transitions could function as an ultimate gesture of loyalty. And then Beijing fell into the hands of Manchu soldiers in 1644, Fu Guo official um, in Beijing, gathered firewood in his library and burned down the entire building together with the tens of thousand volumes kept in it. Refusing to surrender to the Manchus, Zhao Zhenji, another minor official, <coughs> encircled himself with his beloved books and set them ablaze. This concurrent destruction of book and bodies has became a final expression of loyalty, a hero heroic act of self-determined martyrdom. And literatis writings about the book, its materiality and textuality, speak to their sense of identity. As illustrated by the cases of Fu Guo and Zhao Zhenji, their complex and at times emotionally intense relationship with books take on special urgency during dynastic transition. And it, in these times of turmoil, the personal vicissitude suffered by many letters become a metaphor for the social and political upheavals taking place on a national scale. The dispersal of their books, which more often than not attended the cultural and geographical as well as psychological dislocation, figures the disruption of scholarly tradition and loss of cultural authority and authenticity. And profound and intrinsically enduring as the lessons of ancient sages claimed to be, the material, the, the material form in which they were incarnated, the physical book, was as susceptible to abuse and destruction as their literary owners were to political and cultural persecution, a vulnerability foregrounded in times of social crisis. And yet, later to Zhou Liangong, Zhang Longxu, um, a 17th century scholar, gives a disturbingly graphic account of the dissolution of his private collection at the hands of Manchu soldiers, not content with taking every grain of rice and every article of clothing in his house. Those soldiers tore apart and cut up the tens of thousand volumes Chen Hongxu had painstakingly acquired from across the country to make armors 
um, donate armor, <coughs> stuffed with paper and padded saddles. And books once cherished for their text were reduced to their materiality, and the pages that conferred upon me literati a sense of cultural superiority, and smeared with charcoal and stripped of textuality, became weapons for the rising Manchus to assert military power. And similarly, warfare is also the leading course of dissolution of private libraries in the late Qing Dynasty and early Republic China. That's about um, from late 19th century to early 20th century. Altogether, 59 non-private book collections were destroyed during the First Opium War, the Taiping Rebellion, and the Second Opium War. Books were built in outrageous ways in, the, in this turbulent time. And after the Taiping army captured Hangzhou, uh, Ding Bing, a book collector, was shocked to find that pages from Suku Quanshu and Emperor Fortress were used by peddlers as writing paper. Um, and after the Boxer Rebellion in 1900, more than half of the Suku Quanshu stored in Beijing were lost. And rumors went that when troops of the Eight Asian Alliance invaded Beijing, volumes from Suku Quanshu were used as Breaks by soldiers to pump them to support military vehicles. And early modern Chinese literati not only read their books for the words inscribed upon them, but also endowed the material book with ritualistic properties and political significance. The way they used and misused, and misused books and the profound bodily and intellectual bonds they formed with the books shed light on their understanding of the different characteristics and the intellectual implications of different medium and their shifting conceptualizations of learning, and also the relationship between literati and the interior core. Thanks to all three of you for um, three different, but I think related, papers about the use and abuse of books. Um, if our three panelists would be willing to come up to the front and maybe sit um, <laughs> in the hot seat. Uh, we have about 20 minutes for questions, and the floor is open. But can you see us at the seat? Oh, that's a good um, yeah. uh, <laughs> Maybe you'll stand to answer? Okay, exactly. You will probably jack in the box. There's a mix of like just the comfort of having them written down 
But I also think, I mean, when I say that they're so white, the sage leaf cure isn't so widespread. I mean, there's enough of them that I think there's a tradition there. But if I put it in the context of the dying recipes or recipes for cookery or recipes for ink making, those are so consistent and so widespread. I'm talking over, you know, 60 plus, 70 plus manuscripts. I feel like those have to have been used. I think a lot of times recipes came in sets. You know, you copied an exemplar that had, I don't know, 80, 90 recipes in them. You probably didn't use all 80 or 90, but the consistency with which they're transmitted leads me to believe that they were used. I don't have a lot of evidence of use in these 15th century books. There's not, they're not like great, you know, workshop manual notes. I wish I had them, but I don't. Um, my hunch, though, is that some of them are used. If that answers your question. Um, again, uh, Melissa, sorry. Sage, practical and or symbolic, because the leaf is slightly larger than, say, rosemary, and it's not. In <laughs> <laughs> um, contemporary medicinal botanies or herbals, was sage used for aches and fevers? Or? Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, sage was used for fevers. I looked. Um, there are not a ton of recipes for fevers that use sage, but there are a few. And actually, I did. I am not like a like an herbalist now, but I did look into modern herbal pharmacopoeia, and sage is at the head of most a lot of these modern herbal cures for fever. There are some medieval cures for fever, and also, of course, the materiality of the sage leaf. Like it's big, it's kind of thick, it's fuzzy though. So I'm not sure how well it would take ink or how sturdy it would be for like a you know a pen, but. I mean, it makes sense in, in all those sort of different ways. And it, it does occasionally show up in, in other sort of fever remedies that aren't writing remedies. Kathleen Catherine, I, I was struck in listening to your talk about the, the, the touch marks on the books about wet technique. I wondered if that's just a slightly ironic, humorous description of these, the, the touching of the book, or if you've actually um, if you actually think about these practices as a, as a, as a technique, or as, like, as having that. Yeah, th thank you for that question. Uh, so I think that, yes, I mean, there are techniques of the body. Um, there are, I think that there are fairly codified ways of interacting with the book, with the body, and that a whole range of those involve the mouth and the fingers together. And that these are so widespread over uh, Northern Europe that they're being transferred through um, uh, various kinds of networks, sort of a top-down way through priests showing how to handle books. But they must also be, um, there must also be some more um, um, horizontal transmissions because I think uh, people in so English churches, so the, all the lay people who were buying large quantities of books of ours from the southern low countries, they seem to all treat their books in the same way. So there, there must be a community formation around these gestures. Um, and in that way, that they are techniques that can be learned. Uh, I have a question, I think, for all three speakers. Uh, so it struck me as interesting that the relationship between manuscript and print um, was kind of present in all of these uh, papers. And I'm trying to work out what the question is, but I think it's something like, um, so if, for the first uh, paper, if writing, if the process of writing and writing as a craft is um, kind of integral to the curative uh, efficacy, 
What's the relationship between contemporary stamping uh, processes like Eucharist wafer stamps that you see with, I think, with text as well as image um, at precisely this time? And it strikes me that the centers that we're looking at are the places where print is about to emerge. Um, so is the gesturality, of, and this leads to the second question, the, the, the gesture, gestures of uh, writing inherently related to the gestures of reading, or what happens, do these practices survive uh, into the print era? Um, because you indicated that they didn't, that there were the remnants of them with licking the finger. But are, is there something less sacred and present in a kind of Benjaminian sense, maybe, about uh, a printed object? And for the third paper, there seemed to be an indication that print was a way of producing the book that the living reader uh, didn't read, that these are books for the dead. Um, is there a sense that the printed text is less legible or useful, or is it just an economic, you can churn out a thousand of them, and that's what prayers are? Do I, should I? Do you want to go first? I'll start first. Okay, um, so that's a great question, and I, I didn't have time to, it's a, this is a section of a dissertation chapter that's sort of considering exactly that. These books, I didn't have a ton of time to go into it, but all of these 15th century revenue books that I'm looking at are used well into the 16th century, sometimes into the 17th century. I mean, nearly all of them have 16th century, you know, reader marks and whatnot. Um, and so it started as a sort of a, a way to think about what, what did writing offer? What are these books offering? When there's an, a vast number of printed medical remedy books and ways to do these things that are not using physical writing. Um, I don't have a great answer for that yet, but I think these books are, are going to tell us something because there's something about the ritual of writing that even when you can access knowledge in lots of different ways, is still, it carries forward. And I think there's an argument to be made, not one that I don't have the space to make, but the, an argument to be made that something about the creation of domestic recipe collections, which are almost always handwritten, becomes a very divergent category of books versus printed recipe collections in the early, and they're, 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 even though they share recipes, there's a very different set of uses for the two. One is personal and familial and, and related to sort of practices, and the other is public. Um, anyway, so I'll just be done now. <laughs> so uh, in the printed era, there's this wonderful printed missile that uh, where clearly the printed missile isn't something that was as kissable, so that that sort of dead cellulose mm -hmm. material of paper isn't as delicious or, or you know, sort of doesn't, doesn't want to be touched as much as, as warm skin. And so um, there, are, there are printed missiles that still have handmade images of, of uh, the, the Christ crucified that are on parchment that are stuck into them so that they can take the kiss. Um, and, and secondly, I was thinking about the, the um, images of the, the, the Eucharist, of course, is stamped onto the Eucharist wafer, but that same image is also stamped into lead for Eucharist tokens that are printed in a way, and those are then inserted into manuscripts, um, often in the same way that, that one might make notes or, or leave other kinds of traces to say, 
um, that I have taken the Eucharist, and, and here's the proof of, of having done that. And so it therefore it's the book. And so it's a, a printed trace in a handmade book um, of the Eucharist. And then a, a third, a third uh, response, I just wanted to show you this image. Uh, this is from Philip the Good's uh, prayer book that he, had, he uh, inherited from his father, Philip the Bull. And he especially collected images of the Veronica, which is the, the, the premier printed images, uh, that is, is printed with the face. And of course, a lot of what I'm talking about is the printing with the nose grease face. And, um, and, but Philip himself kissed these images to the point where he, he got them extremely filthy. Um, and that whole page is really dirty. You can see the gutters are still clean where his facial grease couldn't reach into the canals. But then, but so he made, I mean, so the Veronica is, is printed with his face, and he's then printing his own face onto the Veronica's. But then I think that what happens is that, and this relates to your paper, Melissa, that he scrapes um, the image but leaves the eyes so that it's not iconoclasm. And then it, that I suspect that this paint then, the scrape, is then used as medicine as part of a, 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 a ritual of ingestion. Oh, in, in the case of religious texts, um, mine is where the hand, hand copying and uh, print work differently. I mean, hand copying uh, a suture or a charm is more devotional and personal. And sometimes people, lay monks or the lay believers, they'll, mm, they'll copy sutures in their own blood. Yeah, yeah so it's, it's, it's a highly intense personal experience for them. Um,
Um, okay, I <clears throat> have seen quite a few printed books, um, popular devotional books, that have been kissed, definitely. Um, French, German, little prayer books, and also Eastern European books. So I think printed, I, I actually disagree with you there. Okay. I think there's, that continued into the printed era. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to mention one other, um, I have a broadside that's a picture of the Virgin, and it's from Germany, 18th century, and it has a caption that says at the bottom, Atakta. It's from a pilgrimage site. It was mm -hmm. a broadside given to pilgrim. Mm -hmm. And that means that it <coughs> had been touched. This, the Virgin had touched the statue. The, the, I don't know whether it was the engraving itself or the paper, but I suspect it was that they would print these and touch them to the Virgin. <laughs> I don't know if you know about that. Thank you for that. It sounds like we need to have a conference bringing together print and manuscript people to yeah, talk on this topic. Yeah. Uh, my, my lack of knowledge about prints is just that I haven't looked at that many of printed books. Yeah. Um, so there's a, there's a wonderful, in the 15th century manuscript that's in Brussels, there is a small print uh, from Cologne, from the Shrine of the Three Kings, that says, this has touched the oh, Shrine really? of the Three Kings. Oh. So it's also a 15th century. So I have a question for all three speakers, but maybe especially for Fan about um, the shifting balance of power between material form and textual or visual content in these objects. Because um, in the um, that amazing image of the inscribed shirt <laughs> that, that he showed us fun where um, you could see everyone tweeting that, <laughs> that, 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 that image um, and where can I get one of those? Um, in, in some ways that seemed like a mirror image of the kinds of imitation that you were describing, Kate, in the sense that in one case we have um, say, uh, say the uh, face print imitating um, the uh, image on which it is being printed or the rained upon page imitating the, the scene of outdoor reading being depicted. Um, whereas in the case of the inscribed shirt, as, as you pointed out, Fun, we have um, the action being the act of inscription violating the very ethical principles being inscribed. Um, and so I, I'm just, this is a very fuzzy question, but I'm curious about the role of imitation or the opposite of imitation in all three sets of case studies, if, if any of you would be willing to take up on that. Um, oh, the, the, the shirt, um, obviously the shirt is, we can say, is kind of a manuscript because it's, it was handwritten, the characters were handwritten. Um, yeah. Uh, but I think the highlighting was interesting, the, the right highlighting, um, because that's a feature shaped by both manuscripts and print in modern China, and sometimes it's really hard to tell the difference. Mm -hmm. um, whether, in mean, for pictures, whether a book is printed or hand copied. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's interesting that the short is like a symbol of the bodily attachment that formed by the literati and, and the text and the books in whatever form they take, yeah. So that may take us back to Melissa's use of the book is almost a symptom of 
bodily conditions. Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think so many charms, not just the sage leaf, so many textual charms are really sort of at their heart about imitation, about imitation of, of, of rituals that involve writing. Um, and I, I think it, it's one of those things I'm still trying to work out, but I think that's sort of where you get this disconnect between pastoral manuals and Aquinas and other people who are so concerned that everyone understand the meaning of words, that the meaning is the, mo is the primary sort of key to a charm. And I think sometimes we as modern scholars sort of fall into that trap too. Like, what is the system of belief that's a Zeronin? It's like, a, I don't know if it is a system of belief. It's something about, it's imitation, it's ritual, it's, it's, it's you know, imitation and then enactment on the body. So, um, yeah. That's, that's, that's. I have a physical response to that. Um, so, um, so years ago at the Warper, I did a project looking at aperture pics yeah. texts that are written into prayer books. And they often are interspersed crosses like the ones you showed. And so I shrunk them down and printed them on the silk and hired a budding silk underwear maker in Glasgow uh, to produce one set of underwear. But there it is. And, but so it, it's, it's so shrunken down signs that are micro-printed, um, so a real imitation of what you were just talking about. Anyway, you, can, you can feel that way. <laughs> Yeah. 
Um, but I think that maybe just starting by getting some vocabulary, getting some, mm -hmm. some new ideas about uh, how people were using books might be the first step, and that there, there's much more work there to do for this comparative thing that you're, that you're um, uh, gesturing about. Well, after all this talk of ingestion, I think our speakers deserve um, some form of refreshment. But before you start to pepper them with more questions over coffee, um, please thank our speakers.